Hey guys, welcome to Murders and Mysteries with McKay. My name is McKay and welcome to podcast episode number one. Since this is my very first podcast, I do just want to put out a quick general statement about what you can expect from this podcast. I've been a true crime consumer for basically as long as I can remember. It's a huge community that really does do some good for the cases that are currently happening and It's just so crazy what word of mouth, especially on the internet, can really do for these real-life cases. I think that the Gabby Petito case that's going on right now really opened my eyes to what the internet can do and really inspired me to be an active part of that. I do want to say that although I love true crime and listening to the fascinating cases that took place in the past and... Just to clarify, when I say fascinating, I mean from like a psychological standpoint because obviously everything that happens in these cases are truly tragic and absolutely horrific, but the psychology I think is just so interesting to so many of us and I think that's why true crime has gotten so popularized. But anyway, what I am saying is although I may do a case or two here and there, that is more geared toward that side of true crime, I really wanted to build a space to talk about cases that really just are in desperate need of having more eyes and more ears on them. So I'll mainly be focusing on cases like that because there's already so many podcasts and so many YouTube channels out there now that already cover some of those really heavy hitters that are more so of those historical cases or just bizarre circumstance cases and they're really good at what they do and really good at storytelling and I will leave that to the professionals. So I really just wanted to kind of put that out there that this is what I'm trying to accomplish by starting this up and I just wanted to say thank you for even clicking on this and giving me a shot at helping tell these stories and hopefully spreading even a tiny bit of awareness to hopefully help someone someday get the justice that they deserve. Now with that being said, I do want to give a trigger warning for this episode that it does involve themes of sexual assault and crimes involving children. If that's something that you can't listen to right now, please take care of yourself and your mental health. I'm sure I'll be able to tell a case in the future that's easier for you to hear, but for now, please do what you gotta do. Moving on to the case, today we're going to be talking about a solved but unsolved case. And I know that doesn't really make sense, but just ride this roller coaster with me and you'll see what I mean. So we're going to first dive into the solved murder of Mary Ellen Diener. Mary Ellen Diener was born on July 27, 1951 in Memphis, Tennessee. She was the firstborn of six siblings, and during her childhood, she relocated with her family to Mansfield, Ohio. Now, I feel like in every case, people say that their town was safe, and it was the type of town you didn't have to feel uncomfortable in, or afraid of, or, you know, have to lock your doors, or be afraid to walk around at night, but that's exactly how Mansfield, Ohio was explained by Mary Ellen's sister, and that's how all of the other residents of the area viewed it as well. Mary Ellen herself was described as a responsible, active, and fun young adult, and she was really praised for doing her part around the house. 
and that is exactly what she was doing on November 14, 1965. At the time, Mary Ellen was just 14 years old. Her and her 12-year-old sister Brenda were doing the laundry together, but on this particular night, the dryer was broken. So, with the wet clothes in hand, her mom put Mary Ellen and Brenda in a cab and sent them to the laundromat to finish drying the laundry. It was said that her mom felt super safe with sending them off like that because, well, one, it was a place that no one really felt unsafe in to begin with, but her grandmother actually lived pretty much right next door to this laundromat, so if anything were to happen, they could just go over there. When they got to the laundromat, they found out that they were actually out of quarters, and without being able to get quarters, they couldn't dry their clothes. So Mary Ellen decided that she would walk to the other close-by laundromat to get quarters from them instead. Now, my mind went to the idea that if her grandma lived so close, why didn't she just go over to her grandma's house to see if she had any quarters, or why didn't they just take their clothes and go to the other laundromat together? But during my research for this case, I couldn't really figure out why getting change from the other laundromat was the best option, but it was only a five-minute walk to, to the other laundromat from where they were at. So it wasn't like too out of the way or too inconvenient. So I guess it does make sense because it could have been closer or easier to get to than her grandma's house at the time. But I did want to point that out in case anyone else like happened to think about that. But... Mary Ellen headed out and told her sister to stay there, which she did, but when Brenda realized that Mary Ellen was gone a lot longer than what she should have been, she went to her grandma's house to tell her that Mary Ellen left to get quarters and just didn't come back. So her grandma had Brenda wait at her house while she went to go look for her. As she was searching around the neighborhood, she ran into the police, which I'm sure it was already really gut-wrenching when you know that your granddaughter is missing or didn't make it back to where she should have been, but as she was talking to the police to figure out what was going on, she looked past the officer and saw her granddaughter's body lying on the ground. The detectives had broke the news that she had been dead for about two hours already and she was asked if she could identify the body. So after gathering herself a little bit, she was able to confirmed that this was, in fact, Mary Ellen. So with this information, this would mean that Brenda was waiting for about two hours before going to her grandma's house to let her know that Mary Ellen hadn't returned. And this kind of brings up some questions to me, like, was no one else, no adult in the laundromat with her that realized that she was sitting there alone with no laundry running for an entire two hours? Because for a laundromat to be operating, there obviously has to be someone working there at the time, and they knew that these two little girls were in there because they had tried to exchange their money for quarters, and they told them that they were out. So it's just so weird to me that no one was bothered that this little 12-year-old girl was waiting in the laundromat by herself, and no one thought to ask where her sister was or if she was okay or if she needed to call someone to pick her up. I don't know, I just thought that was really weird and I thought I would throw that out there. But back to the horrific scene of Mary Ellen, she was unfortunately found with two gunshot wounds to her stomach and her head was being in so badly that her skull was actually crushed. She had coins in her hand and scattered around her so it was evident that she had already made it to the other laundromat and was on her way back when she was brutally attacked. 
At the scene, the detectives were luckily able to identify that a 38 caliber bullet was used to shoot Mary Ellen, so they began a hunt and went around to all of the local gun stores to see if they could find a potential buyer of the gun that was used in this homicide. It was identified that the bullets were bought by Lester Eubanks. Now, Lester Eubanks was born on October 31st, 1943, so he was a Halloween baby, and it's unclear exactly where he was born, but he did grow up in Mansfield, Ohio. It became very prevalent very early on that Lester was a sexual predator. He had a history of sexual offenses and sexual violence and was even arrested two times prior to this case even taking place. The first of the two was on December 21st, 1959, and at the time, Lester was only around 16 years old. He was charged for assault and battery on a minor female with sexual intent, meaning that he intended on raping his victim, but something intervened with his plan and he got caught. For this crime, because he was just a minor, I'm presuming, he only got probation until he was 18. The conditions of his probation included a remaining in his father's custody, and he had to be off the streets before dark unless he was with an adult. On August 23, 1965, six years later when Lester was around 21, he was again arrested for an assault with intent to rape. During the hearing, his bond was set by a grand jury for the amount of $5,000, which he was able to pay, which meant that he was only a free man because he was out on bond during the time of the following events. On the night of November 14, 1965, Lester was just hanging out around the area and saw Mary Ellen walking down the street and, as we now know, headed back to the laundromat where Brenda was waiting at. He grabbed her from the street and pulled her behind a house where it was dark and began pulling up her skirt and pulled down her underwear, but Mary Ellen started screaming out for help and putting up a fight. Because Lester didn't want anyone to catch him since he already had a rap sheet, he took out his 38 revolver and shot her twice in the stomach before he ran back to his place, which was just down the street and around the corner from where this was happening. Lester then had it in him to get dressed and get ready to go out dancing. After just shooting a little girl twice and leaving her for dead, this man actually went out dancing like the actual piece of human trash that he is. So after about 45 minutes of him dancing, he was walking home and passed Mary Ellen's body again. And you guys, this is where the case just gets really tough to dig into because it's just so heartbreaking. But he came across Mary Ellen and realized that she was still alive. He heard her moan in just complete agony and decided to just pick up a brick and completely crush her skull with it, which is so incredibly sad to think about. This little girl fought for an hour or so after being shot at close range twice and was still putting up a fight for her life and to think that if someone would have just walked by or if she was found after being shot somehow that she could still very well be alive today is just one of the most heartbreaking things that I have ever heard but of course he walked away again and went straight back down to his apartment without really being seen but as we know, the police were able to link the gun that he had purchased to being the murder weapon, and they arrested him while he was eating lunch at his church that Sunday. Now, when the police began questioning him, he confessed to literally 
everything. He went into excruciating detail about the events that took place that night. So it was a pretty open and shut case when it came to trial in May of 1966. And now there weren't many details on this, but I guess that he did try to plead insanity at one point. But I mean, he did confess to this horrific crime. So he ultimately was convicted and was sent to death row to pay for what he had done. And this is where the case gets just even more unbearably frustrating. So back in the 70s, it was very common for death row inmates to be able to have access to things to occupy their time with, uh, constructive activities, if you will. So Lester was given materials to paint, which he was actually a pretty talented painter, a shit person, but definitely talented at what he did with a paintbrush. But he ended up somehow building rapport with the guards through this talent of his and the conversations that it brought and really just seemed to be a likable guy, even though he was literally on death row. But get this, while he was on death row, his execution date got pushed back a total of three times. Now, while researching this, there was absolutely no real reasons given as to why his execution date kept getting pushed back, but nonetheless, it kept getting pushed back. But to take things up a notch, because this case isn't infuriating enough yet, in 1972, the Supreme Court actually abolished the death penalty. It was no longer. And this was absolutely heartbreaking for the family because they felt some sort of peace in the fact that Lester had to pay for the life he took with his own. And whether you believe in the death penalty or not, Knowing that the family wanted this and felt like this was the only true way that they could feel closure or would feel like justice would have been served for Mary Ellen, it's just, it's so heartbreaking to know that they never got that closure or justice that they were truly looking forward to. So instead of being a death row inmate now, Lester's sentence was changed to life in prison without the possibility of parole. And because death row ceased to exist because the death penalty no longer existed, Lester was put into the general prison population and now was pretty much just like any other prisoner. He built even more rapport with the prison guards during this time, and it was said that he had a pretty good relationship with the guards and was pretty well liked by them. He was also said to be a model inmate for the entirety of his incarceration. So by building up this reputation, he got into this program that they referred to as like an honor program for inmates. I actually think it was called the honor program. But this program was put into place to help reform prisoners and get them ready to integrate back into society, essentially. It was said that it was also used as an incentive for inmates to behave better while in prison and help kind of like control the prisoners to keep things more civil, if you will. They did things like drive the bus from one prison to another and go run errands with the prison guards, which I'm just going to add, I think that is so weird. I don't think I'll ever understand how or why prisoners, like legit inmates, were able to just change out of their prison jumpsuits into casual clothes and were just sent off to run errands with the guards or were like, even that outside of the walls at all is just so weird to me. Like, if you're in prison, it's very likely you did some really shitty things to get there. But they're like, hey, you're doing great, sweetie. Keep up the good work. 
by being a less shitty human than some of these other murderers and rapists and other horrible people in prison. It just is like, it, it truly blows my mind that that was even a thought that they could do that. But anyway, Lester in particular was even taken to art shows where he got to enter his paintings and he even won a few of the shows and it's super creepy because there's pictures of him standing next to these people handing him awards literally not even knowing that he's in prison for murdering a little girl which is just again so weird to me that he was just casually out and about with a prison guard and keep in mind they were both dressed in civilian clothing he was not required to wear a prison jumpsuit or anything to identify the fact that he was an inmate or anything like that. He was just in plain clothing, looking like any other person on the streets when he was outside of prison. I could literally rant about that all day in itself, but I will move on. So it was approaching Christmas time and it was December 7th, 1973, and the honor inmates were taken to the greater or I'm sorry, it was called the Great Southern Shopping Center in Columbus to get Christmas gifts for their friends and family. Prisoners were taken to a mall to shop for Christmas gifts. I'm just, I'm just gonna leave it at that. Now, usually when the inmates were taken outside of the prison, they were accompanied by a guard at all times, but for some reason, they thought it was a great idea to tell the prisoners that they could just roam the mall and do their shopping alone that day, but they just had to meet up at a designated meeting spot at a certain time, because who doesn't think it's a good idea for a child murderer to be roaming the malls? Well, all of the other inmates returned to their designated meetup spot, scheduled time, but what do you know? There was one inmate missing. None other than Lester Eubanks was gone from the shopping mall and was nowhere to be found. I mean, it's almost laughable that this guy who was a serial rapist or attempted rapist and a literal child murderer was just left to roam the malls without anyone watching him or keeping tabs on him just because he was acting like he was this reformed inmate. It just really doesn't make sense to me. But luckily, this program was shut down pretty soon after because three other inmates actually tried to escape in the 10 days following this whole Lester clusterfuck that happened. So at least they realized that they completely fucked up and decided that this honor program and field trip scenario that they had going on needed to stop. <laughs> but anyway, it's theorized that Lester was actually planning this escape for years. Deputy U.S. Marshal David Seiler believes that Lester was manipulating the guards in the prison system by being that good guy that he portrayed himself to be. He claims that this act, this ruse, if you will, it just got him outside of the prison gates, and that was what his whole plan was. That's what he was working toward. The theory is that he made arrangements in advance and that his visitation list leading up to his escape told a very particular story. He was only having regular visits with people monthly, but just prior to this escape, these visitations escalated to weekly visits, which is pretty odd, I'd say. I mean, it was a holiday time, and it could be that people just had more free time to come visit, but I do have to admit that it's pretty suspicious that he was all of a sudden meeting with people weekly, and it's thought that during these visits, the escape plan was made. I mean, it is more likely than not a planned escape because it being a spur-of-the-moment decision would have been pretty difficult to pull off, 
getting away from the mall quickly without being seen without any plan is super unlikely, at least in my opinion. But it's definitely theorized that someone in his family that supported him helped him escape from the shopping center. However, when his family was questioned about his escape, all of his family failed to surrender any information on where he was at, and they all claimed that they had no idea what had happened. So, as it usually goes, after his escape, Franklin County put a local warrant in the system for Lester, so if any police in the Franklin County were to encounter him, whether it be like a routine traffic stop or any other scenario, they would be able to arrest him on site. Shortly after, the FBI followed suit and took out a federal arrest warrant, meaning that any authority in the continental U.S. could take him into custody and bring him back to Ohio. But with no one really coming forward from his family and really having no leads, the case went really cold. Like, really, really cold. There was literally a should-have-been-death-row inmate on the streets just roaming around, being a free man, but no leads, nothing at all. But in December of 1993, a detective bureau commander by the name of John Arcudi, and I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing that wrong, I think it's Arcudi, but um, anyway, Arcudi got interested in this case. He thought that it was possible that they had apprehended the guy and just didn't really make it news or tell, you, tell anyone about it, so Arcudi decided to do a search in the database regarding his status, and he realized that there were absolutely no warrants in the system for him. The federal warrant was removed from the database, the local warrant was removed from the database, and it was said that it was likely the lack of required follow-up or clerical error. That is what removed the warrant from the database, but there's now nothing for anyone to go off of, which really could have led to the case being where it's at today. No affirmative steps were being taken by any agency to try to bring this man to justice. But with their hands tied and them running out of options and having no leads to further explore, authorities tried to expose him to more eyes. So they put him on TV on America's Most Wanted in 1994. And this actually ended up leading to some movement into the case. Detectives got a call from a lady that she knew him, and she said that she ran around with him in L.A. in the 70s, and that he was living with his cousin's widow, who she identified as Kay Banks. It was later found out that Kay was actually pen pals with Lester when he was in prison, which is probably why he felt safe coming to her house after he had escaped. There are even photographs that show Kay's picture hanging up in Lester's jail cell. Detectives followed up with this lead and met with Kay at her home in Los Angeles on October 28, 1994. Because she didn't want to get into any trouble for, harb for harboring a fugitive, she decided that she would cooperate. So she explained to the detectives that he had lived with her in L.A., but he was no longer there. Kay said that after he escaped, he actually went to Michigan first to see if he was being chased by the police at all to kind of like feel out whether it's going to be easier for him to live freely or if he would have to like live in hiding or on the run, but just to kind of get an idea on how hot on his trails the police were essentially. But he stayed in Michigan for a few weeks. Uh, he earned money by painting houses and then he got on a bus to California and found himself at Kay's door. I'm assuming because there was no one seemingly looking for him. 
Now, are you tired of hearing me say that this is where the case gets even more frustrating because this is where the case gets even more frustrating? Kay told the story about Lester's trip from Michigan to California. And she said that in late December of 1973, the bus he was on got pulled over by the cops. And he thought this was it. He thought he was busted. He thought that he was going to go back to prison. But the police officers got on the bus and started making their way around. And again, remember that the warrants got screwed up in the computer. So pretty much no one was aware that Lester was a fugitive and had a warrant out for his arrest. And it turns out the police were just looking for illegal fruit being brought across state lines. And escaping this made him even more confident that he was now a free man. So he made it to Kay's and she claims that she didn't know that he had planned to escape, which I can't really tell if she knew or not. I mean, she was pen pals with him. He did have a picture of her hanging in his jail cell, so it is a little bit sus to me, but she claims that she had no ideas about his plans to escape, but he did nonetheless, and he was now on her doorstep. But apparently not for long. Kay said that he was a bully and he was intimidating, but like, no shit. He was a serial rapist and a child murderer. I'm not sure what she was expecting this man to be, but like, are you really surprised? But she was smart and decided to make up a lie that she got a call from the FBI asking about him to essentially scare him out of the, the house. And it worked. He, he packed up his stuff and he left. But she did give the detectives a helpful lead. She said that she had known that he had worked in Gardena in a mattress factory at this time. And he started going by the name Victor Young. Detectives checked this lead and they confirmed that he did work at this mattress factory until about 1985 or 86, but he no longer worked there and the owner of the mattress factory didn't have any more information for them. When they looked into the alias, they also realized that Lester had registered for a hunting license under the name Victor Young because he was smart and knew that it would require no fingerprints but could also be used as an ID, so there was not a way to like completely connect him to the name Victor Young, if that makes sense. So even though they had all this information, it really led to absolutely nowhere. So in 1996, the case went cold again. There was no more that the detectives could do to follow up on his whereabouts. They had followed all leads that they've gotten from this, and it still led nowhere. So in 2003, Detective Michael Vinson was contacted and given the case to look into, which led him to look into Lester's father for leads. In summer of 2003, he reached out to Lester's father, Moses, to talk. And he agreed, but told them that he wasn't going to talk about his son, which is kind of odd to me because if detectives are looking to talk to you, you know he knew that's why they were reaching out. So why even agree to sit down and have a conversation with them if you're not real like willing to talk about your son? I don't know. It just didn't make any sense to me. But Knowing that they were going to ask anyway, Vincent and his partner go to talk to Moses. And during this conversation, Vincent asks if Moses thinks that justice has been served, if justice has been served in this case. And he responds with, people change and people go on to start new lives. I pray for Lester every day. And that's all I'm going to say about my son. 
So Vincent and his partner at this point just look at each other and understanding that this man knows exactly where his son is at, but he's not going to give them any clues. Right after this, another detective had told Vincent that an informant had given them some interesting information as well. This informant said that she had also been to Moses' house, and when she was there, he got a phone call. He excused himself from the room and took the phone call, and when he got back, he had told the lady that he was on the phone with his son in Alabama that was on a break from painting a house. Now, if you remember, according to Kay, he was painting houses in Michigan before heading to California to earn extra money. So, obviously, the police looked into this, but they couldn't find any connections that would tie Lester to Alabama, but... They did decide to dig a little more and subpoenaed Moses' phone records, which showed several calls during that time that were coming and going to a center for troubled youth. So they get in contact with the center, and lo and behold, someone matching Lester's description had worked there. The owner said that the person had no driver's license, and when they looked up the social security number that he provided, presumably to do a background check or something like that, it showed that the social security number he provided was not a match to his given name, so it was false. But unfortunately, even though they were almost positive that this was Lester, this person had left a couple months prior to the police looking into this lead. So again, they got real close, but not quite there. And unfortunately, that's really as far as they've gotten. They're trying to keep the message out there that this man is still at large. Unsolved Mysteries on Netflix put this out back in October of 2020, which is actually where I heard about this case. So if you're interested, definitely go check that out. As it's described in that episode, this is definitely one of the biggest miscarriages of justice. And I just really feel for Mary Ellen's whole family. And I really wish that this could have ended differently for them. But please familiarize yourself with what this man looked like and his age progression photos look at the pictures study them burn them in your brain share with as many people as you can what this man looks like and get his face out there he is a black male approximately 5 foot 11 inches and is 77 years old as of this halloween he has known family and friends in ohio Michigan, Florida, Texas, Alabama, California, and Washington, but it is assumed and believed by law enforcement that he is still in the California area, specifically in the Southern California area, so please be mindful and vigilant of that. He also has a huge scar on his right arm that's about an inch long and very thick. He's also a very talented painter, and it's likely that he's still painting in some capacity to help bring in income. The U.S. Marshals are giving a $50,000 reward to anyone that brings forward identifying information that helps lead to the rest of Lester Eubanks. So please share this with anyone in those specific states that he has connections with or really anyone that will take the time to listen and to study his face. He's out there and someone has seen him. Someone knows him. Someone will recognize him. And someone will help be able to bring this man back to where he belongs. So please, if you or anyone you know have any information regarding this case, please contact the U.S. Marshals at 866-4-WANTED. That's 866, the number 4, wanted. Or you can even go to unsolved.com. Thank you so much for listening if you made it this far. I truly appreciate the support. 
Please don't forget to add this podcast to your list and review us on iTunes. It really does help support the podcast and helps raise awareness to these cases that need more eyes and more ears on them. If you haven't already, be sure to follow the podcast on Instagram at Murders Mysteries. It will be linked in the description of this podcast as well. You're very appreciated and very loved, and I can't wait to have you tune in to the next episode of Murders and Mysteries with McKay. My name is McKay, and it was great having you here today. Bye-bye.